opportunity to talk to you all today, uh, tell you a little bit about our story. And um, God's taught us so much um, in the past few uh, months. I won't be able to say everything, and uh, I may leave out some some things that I want to say later on. I, uh, you just uh, pray with me that the Lord would use this today. Let's let's go to the Lord, Father. I thank you for. I thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Um, you've carried us through deep waters, and we love you and we praise you. And uh, Lord, you've you've given us just a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like to give up your son. And a little glimpse into your heart of love because you you knew that you would do this and you did it deliberately and you did it out of love for rebels. And uh, we love you. We love you because you loved us first. And I pray that you give me wisdom and clarity today and right words to say and um, that we wouldn't be glorified and uh, our son would not be glorified, but that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up and shown to be the Savior and our God. And I ask this in his name, amen. Um, I have uh, been kind of leaky since uh, July 29th when our son had his accident. Pray that I won't be that way today. Um, but uh, on July 29th of, uh, of last year, I was headed off to church and uh, had some things to do at church to get ready for the Lord's Day. And my youngest son, Peter, was still living in our house, and, and he left the house a little bit earlier than I did. On my way to church, I, I came upon an accident, and um, it was a pretty sobering accident. Is at the intersection of West Cleburne Road and 1187 in Crowley. I go by there all the time. That's have to get go through there to get to our church. And uh, it did not occur to me as I looked on this wreckage that that was my car. Uh, my car is not shaped like a horseshoe, and um, this one was. It crossed my mind that. Um, the front car resembled mine, and it was the same color. But for some reason, I didn't make the connection. Uh, sheriff's cars were on the scene, and traffic had already been rerouted, and uh, the victims had been care flighted out. Um, I do remember that it was so painful to look at. The car was so painful to look at that I... I prayed immediately. I don't always do this. I do it more now than I used to. But when I come, I come up on an accident, I don't always pray. But this was so painful to look at that I prayed. And I said, Lord, I don't know how anybody could have survived that. But if he's still alive or if she's still alive, please save and please raise them up. About an hour after I arrived at church, uh, I got a call from my wife. Come home quick. Pete's been in a horrible accident. 
And at that point, reality hit. And I made the connection. I realized that that was my car that I'd seen at that intersection and that I'd been praying for my son. Uh, All the way to the hospital, there was really only one thing that was a comfort to me. I prayed all the way there. I cried all the way there. Uh, The only thing that I really latched onto that gave me any hope or any, any sense of comfort in those first painful hours was was the idea the thought that Peter is a believer I saw I saw the wreck and I knew that there was a very real possibility that we would lose him and um, second Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says be diligent to make your calling and election sure and Pete was in the process of doing that it's one of the joys of my heart to see that our, our children, all of them, were, were uh, sinners. Boy, oh boy, were they sinners. And boy, oh boy, are they still sinners. But, uh, but Pete is a believer. He's, uh, he's a sinner, but he's a sinner saved by grace. I've lived with him for 18 years. My, uh, my, uh, my other children were always faithful to remind you, remind me, um, Dad, Peter's not as good as he wants you to think he is. Um, He had a way of manipulating uh, because he was the youngest. I remember one time he he enjoyed that privileged position of being the youngest. And one time he came to to mom and said, "Um, Mom, they're picking on your baby. (laughs) (laughs) So I know he's a sinner. But the marks of grace are on his life. And that was my comfort in those first moments when I, I didn't know whether, um, whether he would make it through this accident. Um, just before the summer started, he came to me with the idea that he would start a Bible study or some sort of a book study among some of the young men at church. He took the initiative and so he and uh, three other young men, I think one of those guys is here this morning, uh, got together every Wednesday night just prior to our fellowship meal, and they would study Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. And he, he started that without fanfare. Uh, there were no young ladies involved in this. He didn't say, hey, Dad, could I do this with the, the youth of our church? It was just the guys. Uh, Young ladies are often on Peter's mind. We've talked about that a lot, but this was not a, um, he didn't have a, a motive toward that end. There was no fanfare in this. He was just in the process of working out his salvation with fear and trembling, in the process of making his calling and election sure, and that brought us great comfort in those early days after his wreck, and especially in those early moments. We saw him struggle as a a boy uh, with Christ's demand for absolute lordship. Peter knew early on that if Jesus was was to be his savior, he had to be his lord. And and we watched him struggle with those things. And so God has been very kind to us. And this has been one of the biggest consolations that our son belongs to Jesus. He's his not only by virtue of creation, but by virtue of redemption. 
He's been saved by the blood of Christ. And uh, even he, he, he loves God's word, and even when it was just a, a dry, bare duty, I saw him try to read his Bible every day. We've got his uh, scriptures in the room where he is at our home. He, he, his room is the living room right now because there are so many things that are required to take care of him. Uh, we have a hospital bed in there, and it's just the best place in our house to take care of Peter. His, his Bible is in there, and it's marked up where he was reading his Bible and little notations in the, in the, uh, the margins. Memorize this. Uh, read this again. So he was, he was uh, making his calling and election sure. When he sang the hymns of the faith, you knew that they came from his heart. We sang together in our home. We sang together at church. And when Peter sang the, the hymns of the faith, you could tell that he, he was worshiping the Lord. Um, um, whenever... We were usually the last ones at church, and people at our church just seem to linger forever after the service is over, and, um, and his friends would be gone, and he would make a beeline for the piano, and he would sit down, and he would beat out the hymns of the faith on that piano after church. And what I'm saying is, is that he was pointed in the right direction when this accident happened, and Selah and I don't claim credit for this. Uh, for the fact that he's a believer because it's an absolute miracle of God's grace that any of us come to faith. Whenever any of us come to the Lord, it's, it's nothing short of a dead man coming to life. And we believe that more and more the longer we're in the ministry. And it's every bit as true for Peter as it was for any wayward child who came to Christ from a pagan home from a background of drugs and alcohol. He is a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace. But here's my first point. This is the first thing that gave us any comfort at all, that Peter belongs to God, and it confirmed a number of choices that his mother and I made before he was even born. Namely, that, uh, that Jesus must be the center of our home. That scripture reading and and prayer have to be part of the daily routine. That we as his parents must do all that we can to pass on the faith to him. And this tragedy confirmed that choice. It doesn't matter if your kids have all of the latest gadgetry. Uh, I hope your kids have a better cell phone than I do. They probably do. They have a cell phone that can do a lot more than I can do, and they know how to use it better than I know how to use my little primitive thing. But it doesn't matter that they have all the latest stuff if they don't know the Savior. It doesn't matter that you've given them their own room with a walk-in closet if they're not following the Lord. If they don't know your Savior, none of that stuff ultimately matters. And so... If you don't hear anything else this morning, I'm speaking to a group of men, and most of you are fathers, and many of you will become fathers. I say this, this is your responsibility. This is central to your calling. God will hold you accountable for whether you uh, keep Christ central in your home or not. Um, You can't save your children. There's no way that any of us can take responsibility for Uh, for saving our children or take credit for that, but you can live out the faith in their presence in a humble, broken, loving way. Uh, You can establish biblical parameters in your home, and you must do this. It's not an option. This is your calling. 
uh, you can establish boundaries, and you must do this. This is what God's called you to. You can and you must sometimes say no to your children. They can't have everything that they want. You have to teach them that, um, that there, there are certain things that, that are good for them and certain things that are not good for them. Uh, you can and you must confront them with their sin, and you, you must show them their need of the Savior. You've got to talk to them. You've got to talk to them about the Scriptures. Uh, you've got to do it continually in the process of the day. And it should be in a loving and winsome and kind way. But this is your responsibility. You can't drop this ball. This is very important. Uh, your kids will leave home someday. Two have flown the nest from the Helms home already. And Peter was on his way to college uh, when this accident happened. And when they leave, they go out and they meet other people. They, they, they find out that there are other people who don't believe the way mom and dad do. There are other people who don't love the Savior like mom and dad do. And they seem to have uh, healthy, happy, wholesome lives. Their worldview seems to present an option, another option. And all they'll have to go on was whether you lived out the faith in, a, in a, a, an authentic and legitimate way in your own home. Whether you pointed them to the Savior. Or more importantly, whether you led them to the Savior. Whether you led out in this or whether you left it to mom. Very critical issue here that you do this. This is your calling. Uh, your kids will leave home someday. And you can't decide for them. I told uh, the, the children at Rock Creek or the young people at Rock Creek shortly after Pete had his accident, don't do this to your parents. Don't go off and, and have something like this happen to you and, and you're kind of on the border and no one really knows where you are in regard to the Lord. Make your calling and election sure. And I say to you, as the, the, the heads of your homes, know the condition of your, your children and your wife. Be the pastors of your homes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our situation is a very difficult situation. I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, Peter uh, has not fully recovered from his accident. He's in what they call a semi-comatose state. When he's awake, his eyes are wide open. And we think that he understands what we're saying most of the time. But he can't talk. He's totally dependent on us. We have to spend the night. Someone has to spend the night with him in order to, to suction the, his, uh, his trach tube uh, so that he doesn't get pneumonia, so that he doesn't strangle on his own saliva. Uh, we have to turn him every two hours or so so that he doesn't get bed sores. We were told that Christopher Reeve, the Superman, died of a bed sore. And so Peter's totally dependent on us to take care of him. This is a heavy thing for us. This, we consider this a tragedy. Shortly after this happened, in fact, the day that this happened, we were just inundated by the love of God. Many of you showed up at the hospital. Many of our friends who were not in the, the state called us. And one of those friends said, Doug, this is like the worst thing that could happen to you. And I said, yeah, this is bad. But it could be worse. Peter was not in rebellion. 
Peter hadn't departed from the faith, that would be worse. Peter hadn't taken his own life. Peter knew that his parents loved him when this happened. Peter was happy in his home when this happened. I can't tell you how much comfort that's brought to his mother and I as, as we've gone through this. So I would say, take, to, take this to heart. Know the spiritual condition of your wife and your children. Be the pastor of your home. Do it lovingly. Do it with great kindness. But be firm and don't drop the ball here. Because if you do, your tragedy may be worse than mine someday. Your children may grow and flourish and, 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 uh, and win all the honors that this world has to give and not know the Lord. Don't let that happen. If it's in your power, don't let that happen. And I'm not saying that, that if you do your part, your children will always make the right choices. I'm not saying that if you do your part, that they will never depart from the faith. God is sovereign and we are sinful. And it is amazing that any of our children come to the Lord and grace of God that they do. But the scripture has a lot to say about the responsibility of dads. It's a heavy burden. And we have the unique opportunity to point our children and lead our children to Christ. And so what I'm saying, the first thing I'm saying to you is don't squander this opportunity. Don't drop the ball here. Do you have hobbies? Great. That's wonderful. You like to golf, like to spend time uh, doing other things? Wonderful. It's not as important as your children. If you've got to do those things, take your children with you. Does your boss demand a big chunk of your time? Maybe an inordinate amount of your time. Too bad for him. Their souls are more important than, than whether you get the promotion or you make district manager or whatever it is that you're shooting for. None of that matters if your children don't know the Lord. So we have this opportunity. And this is important business. And this was the, the first thing that comforted us after Peter's accident, that he's a believer by God's grace. There's another truth that, that uh, up undergirded us immediately and continues to sustain us in that situation. And this is the main thing that I'll talk to you about this morning. And this is the truth that God is in control of every situation. God was not caught off guard or taken by surprise on July 29th at the intersection of West Cleburne and 1187. It was not an accident in his economy. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Do just a brief Bible study here. This is King Nebuchadnezzar after the Lord had humbled him and brought him to his senses. Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does according to his will. And none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? The implication is that that there, there are things that will happen to you in your life and your first impulse will be to go to God and say, what have you done? You have no right to do this. And yet he has every right to do this. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. We belong to him by virtue of creation. We're his. And he's involved in his creation. He's a a loving God. He's in control, but he hasn't left the scene. He's still, he's he's with us. And whatever he does is right and good and just and, and kind. This is clear from God's word. Someone might say, well, I think your situation is, is one where a young man should have been more careful at a dangerous intersection. And I would say, yes, I agree with you. That's the case. But how many times have you been in, in the car and you escaped some kind of serious accident? And what was the first thing you said? Thank God. I think that there are probably many times in the course of our lives when when maybe we were this close to some sort of catastrophe and God saw to it that it didn't happen. We don't take credit for the fact that we're still here because we were wise and and we were quick-witted. We give the credit to God for that, don't we, as believers? So my question is, why why did God... uh, why did God preserve you and me and, and not my son Peter? Sometimes his providence is to let the accident happen. He's in control. There's no doubt about that. The scripture says it clearly and repeatedly. He could, have, he could have stopped this. He could have held Peter back in some way. could have done any number of things that could have caused this to turn out in, in a different way. And he chose not to. My point is that he's in control. Look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you. He's talking to Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus would be God's uh, instrument in his hand to bring the, the Israelites back to their to their land. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He says it repeatedly through the book of Isaiah. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Did he really say that? Did he say, I make calamity? Did he say, I'm responsible for darkness? It's right here. He's in control. God says to Cyrus, will you meddle with me in my business? Look at this. I want you to drop down to verse 9, this same chapter. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among the earthen pots. That's what we are. We're just pots. He's the potter. And where are utensils? 
Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Will you meddle with me and what I'm doing? He says, I'm God and you're not. And I have a purpose that you're not aware of. And that's, that's one of the key points here. He has a purpose. Look at chapter 46 of this same book, Isaiah 46, verse 8. God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose." I will do what I will do. I have a purpose, and I will accomplish the purpose. So he's in control. He's sovereign over his creation. He's sovereign over the individual events of individual lives. He's in control, and he has a purpose. And you may need to remind yourself of this sometime this year. I, I was told, Robert Chastine, where are you? Jeremy is here. Rhonda Chastine came up to me uh, just a day or two after the wreck, and she said, you know, back at the first of the year, you preached a New Year's sermon, and uh, it was out of Habakkuk where it says, though the fig tree shall not blossom and there be no grapes upon the vine, the olive tree shall not cast its fruit and there be no, uh, no grain in the stall, and, and yet uh, at the end it says... Uh, that I will rejoice in, in the Lord in spite of all these things. That's the point of the whole thing. And I preached this New, Year's past, uh, this, this New Year's message last year, about a year ago, and Rhonda Chastine came up to me and she said, you said that we would have tragedy this year. You may need this this year. You may need this this week. He's sovereign. He's in control of... Uh, of our lives, and that's brought us great comfort. In the book of Job, after God allows uh, Satan to take away Job's wealth and his children and his health, in chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, Naked I came from the womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, The Lord gave, and Satan took away. He says, The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. He's in control. We don't always understand uh, his purposes, but he has purposes. And he's in control of the individual events, even the little tiny events of individual lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Ah, this is interesting. Over in, in Luke chapter 12, he says the same thing. And he says, are not, uh, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So I get it that if you buy five, you get a discount, uh, throws in one. But are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
He knows us. He's involved. He's in control. I've been preaching this uh, for years, and I've found comfort in this. I've been preaching through the book of Exodus at Rock Creek during this trial, and it's amazing how the trials of the children of Israel in Egypt have brought comfort to us in our trial. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is arguing with Yahweh about this calling uh, that God has laid on him. He says, I don't want to do this. This is, I'm not eloquent. In chapter 4, he says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. And do you remember what God says? He says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Did you understand what he's saying there? He's taking responsibility not only for people's abilities, but for their disabilities. He's saying, I I make people to be mute sometimes. I cause blindness sometimes. And he doesn't apologize for this because he's God and his ways are far above our ways. He asks us that we trust him, not that we always understand, but that we know that he's a kind and loving God and a wise God and a just God, and he always does everything that should be done. He's in control and he has a purpose, and you cannot imagine how comforting that has been to us in this tragedy. God has a purpose for Peter's life. Peter seems sidelined right now. But God has a purpose for his life. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. And he's using Peter in ways that we are not even aware of right now. But let me take this a step further. Let let me show you what what we have so far. Um, Number one, God is in control of individual events, of individual lives. Number two, God has a purpose. He's... He does everything that he does for a purpose, an ultimate purpose. He's weaving it all together for some end. Whether it's good or bad, it it all serves a purpose. And then number three, for those who love him and for those who are called into a saving relationship with him through his son, all things work together for their good. And this has been our greatest comfort. I read the Bible through every year. I, I love it. And, and yet this one passage over here in Romans chapter 8, just, I just can't get it out of my mind. There's so many other things that we've, we've learned from God's Word this year. We've been comforted by, uh, by any number of scriptures, but this one just seems to stick with us. Um, I have a friend who uh, went to New Orleans right after Katrina hit and was able to counsel some of the families of those Um, whose loved ones had had died in the tragedy. And the head of the chaplains, he went as a chaplain, and the head of the chaplains called him on the carpet for being so insensitive as to counsel these poor bereaved souls with Romans 8.28. And I said, oh, my. I don't know where I would have been without Romans 8.28 through this. What does it say? Romans 8, turn there. 
And we know that for those who love God, all, wor- all, things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look at this, uh, this whole passage. We won't read the entire thing, but um, let me read it with you. Romans 8, look at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know, what I'm going through, what Peter's going through, what my wife and my, my other children are going through is, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us or to us. Verse 19, For the creation waits for the eager longing, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's one of the things that has come out of this for us. We feel the groan. We're eagerly awaiting another day, a day of redemption. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly Wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a rock that you can crawl up on when the world is just uh, swimming in in disaster. I want you to, to see the rest of this. Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you see how this might be a comfort to someone in our situation? This is huge. What this says is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even that thing that happened back on July 29th. Not even the fact that our son is is in a hospital bed and we have to tend to his needs every day. Nothing can separate us from his love. Back to verse 28, though. I want to talk just a little bit about this. I want you to notice, Paul says, all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, if you don't have... uh, that underlined or circled or highlighted, shame on you. You ought to do that. It ought to jump out at you every time your eyes hit that page. All things work together for good to those who love God, even the bad things. I want to show you just a few things that we've learned from Scripture and from our own pilgrimage, a few good things that have come out of uh, uh, Peter's accident and the suffering that's come about as a result of that. Number one, we've learned that suffering helps us to see what's really inside of us. You want to know what you're made of? You don't know what you're made of until you go through some, some kind of suffering. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 10 says, if you faint in the day of trouble or in the day of adversity, how small is your strength? Oh, my. You want to know what you really are? God will show you. Do you really believe the Scriptures? Are you really trusting Christ? Do you really believe in heaven? Those are the kind of questions that are answered when you go through this kind of fire of affliction. And we need to know what's inside. You know, that some people, some believers, when they go through something like this, abandon the faith. Actually, they, they never were a part of the faith, but they finally learn what's inside. You know, some marriages, a lot of marriages, we were told that most marriages fold whenever a family is hit by this kind of tragedy. You want to know what's inside? God will show you what's inside. But for the believer, um, suffering is is a, a pathway to strength. It's a strengthening process. It's part of his sanctification process to show you where you're weak and, and needy, to show you how anemic you are and how uh, you need to trust Christ more fully. Suffering also shows us how spoiled we are how much of the time uh, we waste grumbling and complaining about things that really are not not issues. You know, compared to uh, my problems now, I didn't have any problems 
on August 28th. Those things are small potatoes. And so suffering shows you who you are. Makes you stronger. Helps us to know ourselves, to know where God needs to shore us up. Number two, suffering is good for for those who love God because it loosens our grip on the world. It turns our eyes to heaven. Peter's situation has reminded us of how frail our lives are and how short life is. And our walk with Peter in these past months has been a long walk through the the valley of the shadow of death. We were told um, uh, several weeks after the accident that about half of uh, those who experience brain trauma at the site of a, an accident die. About half of them die at the, at the site. And of those who are, are transported to the hospital, about half of those die a day later. And of those who make it through the first day, about half of those die within a week. And of those who make it through that first week, about half of them die a few weeks later. Their bodies are continually fighting off, you know, our bodies are continually fighting off infections. Uh, We have strength, but in their case, everything they have is working to heal that brain damage, that, that injury, and they don't have anything to fight off infection with, and so they often die of infection. And so we've walked, we felt like we've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We felt sometimes that he's more dead than alive as we've looked down at him and he's not been able to respond to us. And, and someone, when someone you love hovers between two worlds, in a sense, you do too. From those early days after Peter's accident, right up until now, at the Helms house, we find ourselves yearning for a better city. One that has foundations. One whose builder and maker is God. And I think we're more useful to Christ when that's our attitude. And so suffering uh, is good because it loosens our grip on this present world. Number three, suffering is good because it purges out sin. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30 says, Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Well, let me tell you, brother, this was a blow that wounded And that's the effect that suffering has on the elect. Suffering does not have that same effect on those who are not gods. In fact, you look at the book of Revelation and all of the the plagues that God sends on the earth in those last days do not soften the hearts of the non-elect, only harden them. But for those who are his, blows that wound cleanse away evil. Suffering for the elect is uh, like the father's paddle like daddy's paddle. Nothing like dad's paddle to, to help us finish with sin. We were talking about this this morning. I was talking to Dan Runkle about my dad who's here. And, and um, when, when we were little, my dad used to take off his belt and he would, he would bow it up like this and he would flex it like that. Do you remember that? Absolutely. <laughs> I remember one time that our beautiful daughter got in trouble, and we had to spank her, and she came to us. She was about four or five, and she said, 
Mommy and Daddy, I think you just about spanked all of the sin out of me. (laughs) That's the effect that suffering has in the life of the believer. You're finished with it. (laughs) It has a way of clarifying your priorities. And sin's not a priority. It's something we should be finished with. Number four, suffering is good for believers because it sweetens our walk with the Lord. I feel that these past months have been a strange mixture of the most bitter and the most sweet thoughts and feelings that I've ever had in my life. We've been more dependent on the Lord than ever as a result of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. You don't, they're they're just, uh, I think what Paul is saying here is that there are comforts in Christ or sweet things in Christ that the only way you know anything about is by going through suffering. This is hard to explain, but there have been times uh, these past few months when I've stood beside my son's bed and I've wept tears of sorrow and joy at the same time. I didn't know that you could do that. Sorrow because we miss his voice, sorrow because of his pain, but joy because we know God is in control here and that God has a purpose here and Peter is his and we're his and he cares and he loves us. And we get a little glimpse into his heart of love because he sent his son to suffer more than we've suffered for rebels. Number five, suffering is good for God's people because it softens hard hearts and heals broken relationships. Nothing like death or some other tragedy to help God's people to let go of petty little grievances. It's very difficult to hold a grudge against someone when they're, they've wrapped their arms around you and they're crying with you. Number six. Suffering, if you endure it faithfully, increases your credibility when you talk about Christ and the gospel. If you go through the gospel or through the fire and you remain faithful, then you can point to our Lord and you can say he's sufficient. And you have a credibility that you didn't have before that. He's enough. He can take you through the deep waters. He's done it for me. I know he can do it for you. He's faithful. Of course, if you falter uh, and you can't seem to get beyond the sorrow and maybe get bitter as a result of this, then, then your testimony of uh, faith actually is damaged. The witness of Christ is damaged. I'm not saying that you can't weep or have bad times, but ultimately, if we're believers, there's comfort for us. The true believer will find uh, that Christ is more than enough, and the testimony of the one who's been put to the test and come out stronger will carry a lot of weight. Uh, When we were in the hospital, uh, there was a a respiratory therapist who came and helped Peter several days uh, while we were there, a sweet lady, and she pulled my wife aside. She said, "Uh, I want to talk to you. 
She said, where was, where was God when Peter had his accident? So angry, she said. She said, he could have stopped that. And as Selah listened a little bit, this lady pulled out her wallet. She pulled out a picture of a daughter and a granddaughter who died. She said, these were all I had, and he took them. She said, I... I used to think that I might be an atheist, but I'm too angry to be an atheist. And my wife was able to talk to her about the love of God. Found out that this woman, this daughter was a Christian. And she served her church faithfully. And so, so um, Sila said, so this is really not about your daughter and your granddaughter. This is about you, isn't it? She said, yeah, it is. They were all I had. That woman listened to what Selah had to say. She had credibility that she would not have had. She had her ear because of the suffering. For years, I've preached a God who is sovereign, a God who's in control, a God who is immutable and unchangeable, a God who is a rock that you can build on, faithful to keep all of his promises. And I'm still preaching that God. And now... I think when I talk about him, I have a little bit more credibility than I've ever had. God is faithful. He's faithful when he wounds us. Number seven, suffering enables us to comfort others in their sorrow. That's part of the good, one of the good things about this. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1 through 4 has just been full of uh, sweetness for us in these past few days. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Sue is uh, a little lady in our church, and she lost her husband last December. Not last December, but December, December before last. She just went through the, the first year anniversary of, of his death. And Sue and Eddie had a great relationship. Uh, for a while, we wondered whether they were believers. I'm still not quite sure about him, but I'm sure that she knows the Lord. And uh, she took his death very very hard. They had an unusually close, loving relationship. And we wondered how Sue would, uh, would come out of this sorrow. It seemed so overwhelming to her. Two or three months ago, Sue pulled me aside and she said, Doug, I've always enjoyed your sermons. But right now, uh, as you're going through this with your son, you're saying things to me that I need to hear. So suffering enables us to comfort others. It enables us to cry. It enables us to, when someone comes to you with, with, with their sorrow, it, it, you remember yours. It touches that tender point, and you can weep with them. Number eight, suffering faithfully enables us to influence a world beyond our own. Satan comes to God with a little wager, 
Job serves you for what he can get out of this. You know that. But take it away and watch him crumble. So God allowed Satan to touch Job, and he touched him in his most vulnerable and sensitive parts. And the record shows that Job, even though he was weak and wobbly, in the end remained true to God. And Satan and his dirty little hordes had to slink off into the darkness in embarrassment. When Christians suffer, I mean, when they really suffer, heaven and earth take to the edge of their seats to see what will happen. They wonder, does this guy really believe in God? Does she who claims to serve God really love him? Is there anything to this? Will they prove faithful even though it looks like God's about to kill them? Will they receive both good and evil from the hand of God and still praise him and still trust him? And this perspective has strengthened us because every time we feed Peter or dress Peter or have to get up in the middle of the night to to take care of some of his needs, if we do this with the mind of Christ, if we do this with the willingly and cheerfully, which we don't always do, but if we do it that way, we believe that the heavens tremble at the glory of God when you do that faithfully. Things are happening that we're not aware of and won't know about until we reach glory. Be faithful. Number nine, suffering offers a platform for glorifying God that we we don't have otherwise. I'm almost finished. Every year for the past several years, we've led our children uh, in a time of uh, reflection at the end of the year, thinking about all that's gone before us, and then uh, a time of making some serious resolutions for the new year. And I want to read one of Peter's resolutions and reflections dated... uh, 12.30.05, so this was a couple years ago, and Peter is a young teenager. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He didn't come up with that. <laughs> this coming year, by God's grace, I hope I can strive with zeal and vigor. Homeschoolers use words like that, Vigor. I hope that I can strive with zeal and vigor to proclaim God's worthiness and show my joy in him to the world. I hope I can learn more about his sovereignty and love so that I will pour forth in praise to the Lord Jesus. Well, Pete put himself at God's disposal and God took him up on his offer. And not only is Peter learning about God's sovereignty and love, but so are we. And in a very real way, I feel that Peter is reflecting God's goodness and greatness even from his bed, even from his wheelchair. I told one of our friends, it's like his witness is on cruise control because when he had the accident, he was headed in the right direction. And so when people think about Peter, they think about a young man who's not perfect, but a young man who's committed to Christ. And God gets the glory, even though Peter doesn't say a word. As I said earlier, um, Peter was doing a study with some other young men, Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. 
In a real sense, I feel that Peter's life has been more spiritually productive and has brought more glory to God in these past months than in all of the previous years before put together. And in fact, even more than my life, my 52 years have brought to God. His last few months of suffering have brought more praise and more glory and have strengthened more people in their faith than I have in all of my ministry. So God has a purpose, and all things work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to that purpose. Peter believes that, and so do I, and I hope you do too. I will say this, just as all things work together for the good of those who love God, the flip side is also true. Nothing works together for the good of those who do not love God. Even the good things in this life, even the the pleasures and, and the prosperity, all of it serves to harden their hearts and drive them further from the Lord. I pray that you love God. And I know this. I know this young man. I know he is a knothead in so many ways. But I believe with all of my heart that if Peter knew that one person came to faith in Christ as a result of his accident, he would have said it was worth it. I speak to you, young man. Do you know this Lord? He's worth your trust. He's worth your life. He's worth all that you have and all that you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you and we praise you. Times like this only serve to help us see how good you are and how loving you are and how gracious you are. I thank you for how gentle you've been with us. This accident was bad. It could have been worse. But mostly, Lord, mostly I thank you that you saved my son's soul. And I pray that you continue to do a deep work in him, even though we don't know all that's going on there. Lord, we all yield ourselves to you. We want your will. We want you to do your will. We know that sometimes we complain against it like a... a, uh, the clay complain, might complain against a potter. How could that be? Lord, forgive us when we do that. You've shown yourself to us as a, a just God, but also a loving God. You've given yourself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to people who didn't deserve it. Deepen our love. Strengthen our faith. Help us to welcome everything that you bring into our lives because we know it comes in for our good and help us to use it all to your glory. I thank you for these people, these men. I pray for them as they fight the battle of of loving their wives and leading their children and their grandchildren. And I pray that you'd give them wisdom and grace and help them to never give up this battle. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work out your purpose in us and help us to love it and enjoy it and enjoy you more and more in the process. And may you be honored more and more. In Christ's name, amen.